Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. There's been some fascinating political intrigue in Sri Lanka this year that's both interesting on its own terms and also potentially consequential to international affairs and the long-standing question of how to pursue justice after war crimes. Earlier this year, a politician named Mathrapali Sirisena was able to defeat through democratic means the quasi-autocratic ruler Mahinda Rajapaksa. Needless to say, this was a big surprise to most observers. At the same time, Sri Lanka has been coming under increasing pressure from the international community to open up an investigation into war crimes and massive crimes against humanity that were committed at the tail end of Sri Lanka's civil war in 2009. Here with me to explain how this political upset occurred, what lessons it might have for other quasi-autocratic states, and what it means for ethnic Tamil's quest for justice is Kate Cronin-Furman, a human rights lawyer, political scientist, and proprietor of the excellent Wronging Rights blog. Now, if you're tuning into this podcast for the first time because you're interested in war crimes in Sri Lanka, let me direct you to an interview I conducted with Luis Arbour, who was then the head of the International Crisis Group. And at the top of that interview, we discuss why this issue of war crimes in Sri Lanka has been so generally ignored by the international community. But for now, it is my pleasure to introduce Kate cronin Furman, someone I've been reading for a very long time on this subject and on others. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Yeah, so this was fascinating. Um, basically, for the last decade, Mahinda Rajapaksa and his family had been consolidating what looked like a dynastic hold on power in Sri Lanka. Um, Sri Lanka is actually Asia's oldest democracy, so this was a real reversal um, since since Rajapaksa's initial election in 2005. Um, he basically converted the country's political system to a sort of soft authoritarianism where they were still engaging in the exercise of elections, but in fact, um, you know, the independent press had been silenced, the judiciary had been hamstrung, and essentially it was a personalist regime with extreme power consolidated in the hands of the presidency. Uh, so when he called a snap poll, um, which, which he did in November, um, announcing that presidential elections would be held on January 8th, which was about two years ahead of schedule. When he did that, everyone expected that he was going to walk into another term um, and essentially kind of put the finishing touches on this stranglehold that he and his family had on Sri Lankan politics. So Rajapaksa lost. Who defeated him? Who is uh, Surasena? So um, Maitri Pala Sirasena uh, was a member and actually I believe the party leader of Mahinda Rajapaksa's party. Um, he was health minister. 
um, during the Rajapaksa government. Um, and he, you know, he basically was an extremely unlikely figure to displace Rajapaksa, who he was by all accounts a, a good friend of. Um, but what happened was that basically an unlikely alliance was formed between the opposition party, that's the UNP, and the, uh, the main parties representing the religious minorities, so the Tamil National Alliance, um, as well as the, the Muslim Congress, which was in government with the Rajapaksas, and sort of disgruntled elements of the ruling regime. Um, so this actually kind of turns out to be a fairly classic story of an elite split um, where members of Rajapaksa's government who were dissatisfied with the status quo and, you know, we can sort of conjecture that that's because um, the, the benefits of being in power were mostly getting dispersed to the family rather than senior leaders of the party, basically decided that uh, they, they had had enough already, um, and they were not going to continue to to stand with this man. So it was really a case of insiders pushing out um, the strong man, Absolutely. sort of banding together. Um, and so the strong man, Rajapaksa in this case, just sort of did a poor job of insulating himself against that. Yeah, and, and that's a little bit of, of what's such a surprise here, is that we, you know, looking from the outside, um, we knew that the Rajapaksas had very close links with the security sector. So, you know, they won the war in 2009 against the LTT insurgency. So, so they had these very close links with the military, and it seemed like there wasn't much that could disrupt their hold on power there. Um, but in fact, they had not really done their due diligence at keeping senior members of the party happy. So, you know, when this chance came to break away and align instead with the opposition, a, a really surprising number of people, even in the leadership of Rajapaksa's party, took it. Um, so the defeat of Rajapaksa also sort of comes at an interesting time. I mean, we are now um, about at the six-year anniversary of the end of the Sri Lankan Civil War. Yep. Um, and, you know, that saw the defeat of the Tamil Tigers, the LTTE as they're known, but also saw like a huge mass atrocity event, probably the worst mass atrocity event after Darfur before Syria. Something like 40,000 ethnic Tamils were probably killed at the tail end of this civil war because of tactics used by the Rajapaksa regime to defeat the Tigers. Uh, you know, they, they didn't discriminate between civilians and fighters. And it was just like this awful. There's been really kind of some amazing reporting about that. Um, so I guess my question then is, like, where does this new government fall in terms of trying to pursue some sort of accountability for crimes against humanity and war crimes that were committed almost certainly by the previous rulers, by the Rajapaksas? So that question is a little bit hard to answer right now. On the one hand, Maithripala Sarasena, who's currently the president of Sri Lanka, was in fact acting defense minister during the last weeks of the war when those incredibly serious mass atrocities were Can committed. Can you just maybe describe what happened? 
at the tail end of the war? Sure. So, um, so the Rajapaksas came into power on this campaign promise of a hardline approach to the LTT. Um, the previous government had been viewed as um, overly appeasing in its relations uh, with the rebels. Um, the Rajapaksas said, no, we're going to defeat these guys militarily. And basically what they did was to put in place an incredibly robust counterterrorism strategy, uh, which essentially did not bother to discriminate between <laughs> civilian and military targets. Um, so they, they basically, um, the government forces swept um, sort of north and east through tiger-held territory and then pushed the civilians in that area ahead of them. Um, so this obviously caused incredible devastation, displacement for the Tamil civilians caught between the military and the rebels. This was exacerbated by the fact that, well, by two things. The government, um, over the course of this push, repeatedly declared so-called no-fire zones and invited civilians to go to them so that they could be safe, but then shelled those no-fire zones. So there was incredible devastation and death toll from shelling of the no-fire zones. They also shelled hospitals, um, despite, by all accounts, being given the coordinates where the hospitals were operating. So it's very hard to um, construe this as anything but an intentional effort to attack hospitals. And on the other side, the tigers essentially um, threatened the lives of anyone that crossed to the government side. Uh, so they were using the civilians as a human shield to protect themselves. And you know what this disregard for civilian life on both sides added up to was a tremendous death toll. Um, so as you said, you know, the UN panel of experts came out with a report where they estimated that as many as 40,000 civilians were killed in the final months of the war. Um, other estimates have been as high as 70,000. Uh, so, you know, really this is mass civilian suffering. Um, and it looks like it was done relatively intentionally by government forces. Uh, and so where does that leave us in terms of, of accountability for war crimes? I know that the UN has their own kind of process uh, that the previous government, the Rajapaksas, uh, were strenuously like trying to undermine at every turn. Um, how does the new government approaching this, this process? So the new government has said a number of things that suggest that it will cooperate with the international community. Um, you know, in, in part, that's because this new government uh, is renewing Sri Lanka's ties with the West, with the U.S. and Europe, um, and turning away a little bit from China. Um, however, it's hard to know how far they'll be willing to go. So, you know, they've, they've uh, made some statements that they'll be setting up a domestic probe um, to look into these allegations. But it's worth noting that the Rajapaksa regime said that repeatedly, and in fact created several domestic mechanisms over the last five years as international pressure ramped up uh, for accountability. So 
you know, the, the, the Rajapaksa regime created the Lessons Learned and Reconciliation Commission. They created this uh, commission on disappeared persons. At one point, there was even an army court of inquiry. So a promise to set up another domestic mechanism is not on its face particularly encouraging because Sri Lanka, even before the Rajapaksas, has this long, long history of creating empty commissions that don't ultimately provide any justice. Um, but on the other hand, is it fair to say that the new government's openness to the United Nations process is a sign that they may be sort of more willing to engage in some sort of like international form of justice or and accountability? Well, that remains to be seen. So the Rajapaksas did not, the Rajapaksa regime did not allow the international investigators into Sri Lanka to conduct their work. Um, that, the, that international investigation, it was a UN Human Rights Council investigation, uh, has finished its work. It, it managed to collect evidence from uh, people in the diaspora, from refugees. And it should be delivering its report uh, in Geneva at the UN Human Rights Council meeting next month. There is, however, a push right now coming from the new government in Sri Lanka and some of its allies to potentially delay that report. Um, so the argument that the Sarasena administration is advancing is that it needs time um, to kind of figure out what it's going to do to um, get the domestic political situation under control before it can act on accountability. And that the, the UN Human Rights Council should um, basically pause its process and let them sort things out. Is it known how the USA stands on this question of whether or not to delay the report and the, of inquiry at the Human Rights Council? I suspect that the U.S. is probably in favor of doing that. Um, there have been some uh, statements in the media from former U.S. diplomats suggesting that Sri Lanka needs to be given the time and space to handle things domestically. And regime change was certainly a top priority of U.S. policy towards Sri Lanka. So. Um, you know, certainly our government will be feeling more favorable towards the Sirisena administration than it was to the Rajapaksa administration. Um, so it may be that the U.S. will be willing to support uh, a delay on the Human Rights Council process. Um, beyond sort of justice and accountability mechanisms, how does the political shift in Sri Lanka Bode for um, ethnic minorities in the country, the, the Tamils and, and others? So this is a big open question right now, because obviously this administration came into power uh, in part because of the support of minorities in Sri Lanka. Um, however, just like the Rajapaksa regime, uh, the bulk of their support comes from the Sinhalese Buddhist population. So they're in a fairly dicey position in terms of what they can deliver on in terms of improving the situation for minorities without alienating the largest portion of their electorate, which remains deeply nationalist and deeply committed to Sri Lanka being a unitary Buddhist state. 
So, you know, for Tamils, in addition to the accountability issue, demilitarization of the North and devolution of some governance power are top priority issues. Um, unfortunately, these are also huge issues for the Sinhalese electorate who do not want to see the North demilitarized and do not want to see uh, anything like a federal system put in place. So, you know, the, the, the Sarasena administration made a number of campaign promises on both sides and it remains to be seen, you know, whether um, they'll actually take steps to start to ease the situation in the North or whether that won't be politically feasible for them. Well, but in general, I would have to imagine that the political climate is greatly improved just considering that, you know, the crew that was trying to heighten sectarian tensions and stoke Sinhalese nationalism has been defeated. And at least now you have a politician who needs to thread some sort of more nuanced needle, right? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the, the BBS, the, the militant Buddhist monks organization, has announced that they're going to go into politics directly as a political party now. Um, it's like the so, Tea Party reaction to Obama, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, in, in part, I'm sure that's because they no longer have the protection of the people in government. Um, but it also kind of underscores the extent to which they will continue to be a political force in this country. Um, so, you know, it's it's not clear yet how much the sort of um, the push towards extreme Sinhala chauvinism and nationalism over the last decade will be walked back. Um, it's also important to note that this Sarasena administration is only supposed to be in power for 100 days. You know, this is, in a sense, a transitional government. Um, so it's not clear, you know, when elections come around in, it should be late April, you know, what happens then? Like, uh, if, they ha if they haven't delivered on these campaign promises of the 100 days program. And so know, what are the Rajapaksas just kind of waiting in the wings right now? Like, what, what are they doing right? They absolutely are. Um, so um, one thing that's happening is that uh, people in the new administration are bringing corruption allegations against members of the Rajapaksa regime. Um, and that's partly because it appears that there was massive corruption committed, uh, you know, over the last 10 years. But I also assume that it's partly uh, a political move to hamper these people's ability to remain in politics because, you know, they are still there. They do command tremendous support among the Sinhalese Buddhist population in the south of the country. Um, and they very well could be just, you know, waiting it out and planning to return. Uh, well, Kate, thank you so much. This was uh, very helpful and interesting, and I'm glad uh, you were there to explain it all. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's okay. always a pleasure to talk about this stuff. All right. That was great. Thank you so much to Kate. Thank you all for listening. You know, I use this podcast almost as an excuse to call up people and ask them questions about issues around the world that I'm particularly interested in. And I'm glad that you out there listening share that curiosity with me. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Bye.